0: annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.
1: Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast. Cold War Recap, 1945-1950. to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hoag. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoyed this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Moreover, don't forget to check out the pictures for this episode on the website and to follow us on social media for all of our latest Cold War news and content. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. In the last 57 episodes, we have examined the early Cold War from its political and ideological origins to about 1950, examining the major events of the period, the politics and ideologies of the era, and its major political figures. We also took a high level analysis of the militaries of the period and the influential technologies of the era, like the jet aircraft or the development of the Soviet atomic bomb. This episode is meant as a recap or cliff notes for the period 1945 to 1950. All of the subjects and events I touch on in this episode I examine in much more detail in the first 57 episodes. This episode is designed for those who may want to understand what the early Cold War was all about for an upcoming test or simply don't have the time to listen to 57 episodes. This episode is also a recap for those who want to understand from a big-picture perspective what the last 57 episodes mean from a high-level standpoint. Most of the episodes have covered events either leading up to the Cold War or the important events and personalities of the first five years of the struggle. A few episodes have gone beyond this, as it wouldn't make sense to end the narrative in 1950 for that particular topic but for the most part, I have focused on covering the first five years of the conflict. Moving forward, for the next few years, the podcast will be addressing the events of the 1950s. That being said, from time to time, we might reflect on this period to illustrate a particular topic or theme, but for the most part, moving forward, the podcast will be focusing on the topics, themes, events, and personalities of the 1950s. As we outlined in our first few episodes, the ideological and political origins of the Cold War date back to the 19th and early 20th century. The economic system of capitalism had developed slowly over thousands of years as a system of interlocking beliefs around private property, the accumulation of wealth, and consumerism. As a result, beginning in the 17th century, capitalism became prone to booms and busts and the unequal distribution of wealth. By the 19th century, with the rise of industrialization and imperialism, new critiques of capitalism began to appear, the most powerful of which was Marxism. Marxism planned to address the boom and bust cycle and inequality through planned economies, reallocation of wealth, and the abolition of social classes. As Marxism developed in the years after Marx and Engels' death, ideological splits developed around how to achieve these ends politically. Many socialist movements, such as the labor movement in Britain, or the Social Democrats in Germany, sought to create socialist societies through elections, social change, and legal reform. Other Marxists, such as the Bolsheviks, saw these socialists as corrupt and or sellouts. They argued that the capitalist system could not be reformed. The capitalists would never part with their wealth willingly. Socialist politicians, they argued, would become corrupted by capitalist money, and whatever progress that was achieved would be reversed through subsequent elections. Hence, a social society could not be achieved through a democratic means. The Bolsheviks, therefore, advocated for the violent overthrow of the state and the nationalization of state property. A revolutionary vanguard would establish a dictatorship of the proletariat or working class. Although, in practice, it was a dictatorship of the Communist Party, the Central Committee, and a central figure, like Lenin or Stalin, leading the party the central committee and leader or chairman would direct development and allocate resources through the state until such time that a communist society emerged and the state would cease to exist. Amongst other Marxists like anarchists and democratic socialists, the critique of Bolshevism developed that argued violent revolution would lead to dictatorship and cultism with economic wealth even more heavily concentrated than under capitalism. Under such a system, workers and peasants would no longer be the slaves of capitalists, but the slaves of the state and the Communist Party. In 1917, the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, put these ideas into practice when they seized control of Russia in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution and subsequent civil war. For a time, roughly 1917 to 1924, it appeared that socialism might spread to the rest of Europe and America. Communist uprisings were suppressed in Germany and Italy. In Britain, labor won its first election, and in America, the first Red Scare broke out with a series of anarchist bombings. Nevertheless, these other Marxist movements were suppressed or failed to take off as the 1920s progressed. The Soviet Union, now under Stalin, moderated its international stance and concentrated on building up socialism within the Soviet Union. Simply speaking, Lenin and the early Soviet Union had advocated an international policy of spreading communism which made the Soviet Union a pariah in the international system for advocating the belief that communism would quickly spread to other nations. Seeing that this wasn't the case, Stalin adopted a stance of realpolitik. He would make treaties and arrangements with capitalist powers when it fit the interests and goals of the Soviet Union. On the other hand, when he could spread communism and it coincide with the interests of the Soviet Union, he would. The 1930s brought with it the Great Depression and a loss of faith in capitalism and democracy around the world. The Great Depression resulted in staggering worldwide unemployment and poverty. World GDP fell by 15% in comparison to the 1% decline in 2008. Millions were unemployed, and hunger and starvation became serious issues for millions of people. In these economic conditions, communism flourished, as did two other ideologies, Keynesian economics and fascism. Fascism, penned by Benito Mussolini, a former socialist, represented a right-wing alternative to Marxism and socialism. It emphasized traditional values like religion, the family, and patriarchy coupled with xenophobia, ultranationalism, and elements of state socialism. Fascism varied from country to country, but shared distinct values such as a reliance on a strongman government, centralized state planning, militarism, nationalism, and curtailing of civil liberties emphasis was placed on the nation and group cohesion above the needs of the individual or human rights. Private property and social classes remained, but the state and its leader became the unquestioned directors of the nation, society, and economy. Corporations and businesses were directed on national level. Business owners retained nominal ownership of their companies and profits, but the projects and agendas were set by the state. In the 1930s, Hitler demanded German industry rearm for war, and German industry followed suit. Some businesses were nationalized, but the levels of government ownership never reached those seen in the Soviet Union. One way to think about fascism is if communism was a dictatorship of the working class, fascism was a dictatorship of the middle class with petty bourgeois values. The alternative to these systems, which came out of the United States, was a regulated capitalist system with a public safety net. The democratic and capitalist system was retained, but augmented with greater government regulation, social safety net programs, and government works projects to spur growth and fight unemployment. FDR and the New Deal sought to revive the American economy through the embrace of Keynesian demand-side economics. The government restrained from nationalizing businesses, but sought to regulate the economy through laws such as Glass-Steagall, and monetary policy through the Federal Reserve, controlling inflation through setting interest rates and printing money. Roosevelt also initiated a number of programs to address poverty and alleviate the depression through the introduction of government works programs like the Tennessee Valley Authority and social programs like Social Security. Despite the rise of Keynesian economics in Western Europe and the United States, a few diehard free market economists Ideologues and businessmen continued to keep the ideas of the free market, or what is known as the Austrian School of Economics, alive, led by such figures as Friedrich Hayek, who wrote the influential book during the period Road to Serfdom. These ideas were marginal during the period, but were popular with many and would be- make a comeback by the early 1980s, and the rise of these ideologies set in motion a series of forces that would culminate in the Second World War. The decline of international trade and the Depression, coupled with racist and expansionist ideologies of Japan, Italy, and Germany, led to a new world war, as the Axis powers sought to reshape the global diplomatic order which had been established in 1919 at Versailles. Germany, Italy, and Japan addressed their economic issues through wars of conquest. Germany sought to colonize Eastern Europe and Russia. Italy sought to rebuild the Roman Empire with a new Mediterranean-based empire. Japan sought the conquest of China, Southeast Asia, and Australia. Through the enslavement of these lands' native peoples and acquisition of their natural resources, the Axis powers sought to build new economic self-sufficient societies. Despite the ambitions of the Axis powers, the democracies and the Soviet Union came out of World War II victorious, despite the high costs and blood and treasure. In spite of their differences, the British, Americans, and Soviets successfully worked together to defeat the Axis powers. However, even with their cooperation during the war, the alliance quickly started to break down after the defeats of Germany and Japan. Both sides didn't trust each other. Stalin and Soviet leadership believed that the capitalist powers sought to undermine the Soviet Union, especially after the death of Roosevelt, whereas many in British and American leadership saw the Soviet Union as an expansionist power, which sought to expand socialism to other parts of the world. Both sides held suspicions of the other, which dated back to World War I. The Soviets remembered the British and American support of white forces and their occupation of Vladivostok and Murmansk during the Russian Civil War. Churchill, the British Prime Minister, had been a fierce critic of the Soviet Union and had called for its destruction. Many Americans remembered the bombings of the 1920s and the First Red Scare, despite the fact no evidence has ever been found that the Soviets were involved, and saw the totalitarian government of the Soviet Union as no different than that of Nazi Germany. Truman famously said in 1941, before America's entry into the war, that he was glad that the Nazis and Soviets were killing each other. Roosevelt had worked hard to improve relations with the Soviets and to win Stalin's trust. Indeed, many New Deal Democrats were sympathetic with the Soviet Union, and a few were even spies passing information along to the Soviets. Yet, with the death of FDR in April 1944, More Russian hawks like Truman and Forrestal came to the fore, and pro-Russian politicians like Henry Wallace slowly lost influence in the administration. When the Cold War began, the United States had two great advantages over the Soviet Union, its wealth and the atomic bomb. America's wealth and industrial capacity after World War II was unprecedented. The U.S. economy was 11 times greater than that of the Soviet Union and was virtually untouched from the wars versus Europe and Asia, which had been devastated. American possession of the atomic bomb neutralized large-scale conventional war. America 1945 through 1950 could deliver atomic destruction to the Soviet Union with impunity, as the Soviets were incapable of intercepting American bombers, nor could they retaliate as they had no bomber that could reach the U.S. The Soviets, however, had two advantages over the Americans at the beginning of the Cold War, their larger army and an excellent espionage network. The Red Army, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, filled it a larger army with comparable or better weapon systems versus the West. The American atomic bomb did neutralize this advantage somewhat, yet the Red Army still retained some value. It acted as a deterrent to American influence in Eastern Europe and made America cautious in starting a war with the Soviet Union the Americans were fully aware that without the atomic bomb, they wouldn't stand a chance against the Red Army. Conceivably, 1945 to 1950, the much larger Soviet armored formations would overwhelm the Allied garrisons in Germany and the smaller standing armies of the low countries Denmark and France in a matter of a few weeks. In little more than a month, Soviet tanks would be rolling down the streets of Paris and would be at the English Channel. More importantly, Soviet intelligence, 1945 to 1950, leveled the conflict between the United States and Soviet Union. The Soviets had high placed spies in both the American and British government and industry, which delivered high valued political and technological secrets, which ate away at the technological lead of the West over the Soviet Union. The Soviets had a, de- a deta- detailed, 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 under- detailed, and their debates, even if they didn't believe their own spies all the time. Moreover, this network delivered the plans for the atomic bomb to the Soviets, which redressed the immediate technological imbalance between the Soviets and the Americans. In contrast to the Soviets, American and British intelligence in the period which had been so successful in World War II struggled to penetrate the Soviet Union. American and British agents were quickly discovered, compromised, arrested, or turned. Thus, American and Britain came to rely heavily on aircraft or flights and breaking Soviet codes. Some success was achieved in breaking the Soviet codes with Viona and early computers, but such victories were short-lived and compromised by Soviet intelligence. Fighting in the new Cold War took on an indirect approach, unlike the Second World War. The U.S. and the Soviet Union fought battles through intelligence, propaganda, and proxies. Communist insurgents had already begun fighting the allied-backed government of Greece in the closing stages of World War II. In Asia, communism had gained popularity as fighting erupted once again between communists and nationalists in China. The Soviets also pressured Turkey in a show of force to gain control of the Dargonels and Bostris to get access to the Mediterranean. In Iran, the Soviets attempted to establish a sphere of influence, refusing to withdraw their troops despite their agreement with the Allies. The U.S. responded with UN pressure for the Soviets to leave Iran, while the Truman Doctrine supplied weapons and money supporting Greece and Turkey against the spread of communism. Yet Stalin was hesitant about a confrontation with the West. He felt the Soviet Union wasn't ready for a war with the West. He had not backed the communist insurgency in Greece and had warned the Yugoslavs and Albanians against such moves. In China as well, Stalin was hesitant in backing Mao all out against the nationalists. Stalin was attempting to push Soviet interests and advantages as far as he could without provoking a war, but Stalin mistakenly had overplayed his hand. From the American perspective, the struggle had already begun. As a result of these provocative moves, the U.S. started to respond in kind. The United States' plan to deal with the Soviets was to contain communism to the nations that it already existed in, namely the Soviet Union, and to limit its growth in other regions, especially Europe. The Americans moved to secure Western Europe by announcing the Marshall Plan in June 1947, the objective of which was to loan money to the European governments to stabilize their economies and to entice some of the nations of Eastern Europe away from the Soviet Union to participate in trade with Western Europe and the United States. In Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, with the agreement of the Allies, had already pushed its borders further west. It also established mixed governments in the rest of Eastern Europe, which leaned left. These governments were coalition governments between the local communist party and the remaining left-wing parties. Yet with the horrible economic conditions throughout Europe and the aftermath of World War II, many people flocked to the communist parties outside of Eastern Europe, and it looked like communist governments might emerge in Western Europe. The Americans feared nations like France and Italy with strong local communist parties might go communist as well. European markets were key to American economic trade. If these nations became communists, the United States feared they would no longer have access to these markets. Moreover, Americans believed the high tariffs and a decline of international trade had contributed to the Great Depression and feared that a communist Europe would lead to another Great Depression and possible world war. Hence, the United States sought to alleviate and regenerate the economies of Western Europe through loans to help Europeans to buy the needed foodstuffs and manufactured goods to fight off starvation and help rebuild their economies. The Americans also hoped to entice some of the nations of Eastern Europe, like Czechoslovakia, away from the Soviet orbit by opening the regions up to American trade via the Marshall Plan. Stalin responded to this by clamping down in Eastern Europe with a series of coups which began in Prague in February 1948. Stalin saw Eastern Europe as a security buffer, and he was intent on having friendly nations on the Soviet border. In the course of roughly 30 years, Russia had been invaded twice, costing an estimated 29 million lives. Having capitalist nations on his border, Stalin feared could be the springboard for future invasions of the Soviet Union. At the time, there were doubts that the Marshall Plan loans would succeed. Yet by the early 1950s, it became clear that the loans had worked in bringing about economic stability, whereas Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union continued to struggle to recover into the 1950s. By the 1960s, Western Europe was once again prosperous, yet Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union continued to lag behind. Beyond the Marshall plans, the Allies also decided to rebuild the heart of the European economy by fusing the British, French, and American zones of occupation into a new West German state to spur growth, tackle inflation, and control the costs of Allied occupation. Since the creation of Germany in 1871, Germany had become the economic heart of Europe with its commerce and industry. Many nations like France, Belgium, Holland, and even Britain had been major trading partners with Germany. Yet the German subsequent division and occupation between the victorious allies had destroyed the German market and inadvertently also damaged the economies of the rest of Europe, hence the desire to reunite the western parts of Germany into a new state. This move, though, created anxiety with the French and the Soviets. France had been invaded three times by Germany in the last 70 years. Yet France in the late 1940s was dependent on American aid to rebuild their economy and retain their colonies, so she wasn't strong enough to prevent the creation of West Germany. In the short term, France was dependent on American aid, so she had to go along with the plan. The Soviets were also concerned that the Americans were reconstructing a nation that had invaded Russia twice in the last 30 years and had come close to conquering Russia. Stalin responded to this by the Berlin blockade, an effort to push the Allies out of West Berlin. After the war, Berlin, like Germany, had been divided into zones of occupation, with the British, French, and Americans controlling the western half of the city and the Soviets the eastern half of the city. The Soviets believed that by blockading East Berlin, the Allies would have to withdraw before they starved, which would deliver a political victory to the Soviets, in the hope that the Allies would rethink their position on the creation of West Germany. The Allies had already begun to stockpile food in anticipation of such a blockade. Nevertheless, once the blockade began, they didn't have many options to deal with it long-term. The first option was shooting their way through with an armored convoy, but this option was quickly voted down as it would start World War III. The second option was to withdraw from the city. The military favored this option, but Truman refused to surrender, understanding it would be seen as capitulating. The third option was an airlift, which seemed like a long shot as no city had ever been supplied by the air. The Luftwaffe had tried at Stalingrad in 1942-43, but the effort had been a failure. Truman chose the third option, and despite all the obstacles, over the next year the Allies successfully supplied the city. Stalin saw the blockade was a failure and that West Germany was a foregone conclusion and gave up. The blockade also helped the creation of the NATO alliance in 1949. The nations of Western Europe, minus Sweden, Switzerland, and Spain, forged an alliance with Canada and the United States to coordinate their defense in case of a war with the Soviet Union. In the 1930s, the nations of Western Europe had not coordinated their defense in anticipation of a future war with Germany, despite the real possibility that existed. When the war broke out in the spring of 1940, their armies weren't prepared, and they struggled to work together, which aided the German victory. Learning from the mistakes, the nations of Western Europe wanted to be prepared for any future war. Hence, NATO solidified and formalized the Western alliance and improved Europe's defense. While the Cold War was unfolding, another force was also accelerating, which intertwined with the Cold War, decolonization. Beginning in the 16th century, European nations had begun conquering territories in the Western hemisphere, Asia, and Africa. By the early 20th century, most people of the world lived under some sort of Western tutelage. Two forces, though, in the late 20th century ate away at the European overseas empires—nationalism and the economic weakness of the European nations in the aftermath of World War II. The spread of European or Western education planted the idea of nationalism in different peoples around the world. Nationalism is the belief in a group of people with a shared language, culture, and historical myth living in a historical homeland. Therefore, the Vietnamese, Indians, Indonesians, and many others saw themselves as independent countries under foreign occupation by the early 20th century. Yet, until the late 1940s, they lacked the military power to overthrow European rule. World War II decimated the European economies and hampered their ability to hold onto their overseas colonies. As a result, 1945 to 1950 witnessed the creation of several new nations, In India, the British Raj, after over a century, ceased to exist. Great Britain lacked the army, money, and more importantly, political will to retain the Raj. Hence, the British agreed to a staged political withdrawal. In the Middle East, the British handed Palestine back to the United Nations administration. Again, Britain did not have the money nor the long-term political will to retain Palestine in the face of continued violence. Yet India and Palestine were the exception. The European powers fought to retain other parts of their empires. The Dutch lost control of Indonesia despite its victories on the battlefield. The Americans refused to grant the Netherlands aid unless the Dutch granted Indonesian independence. In 1945, France began a bitter struggle against the Vietnamese independence movement, which would stretch into the 1950s. The British as well began a long-term struggle in Malaya, which began in 1948 but wouldn't end until 1960. The period also witnessed the violent suppression of an independence movement in Madagascar by the French. Yet the end of European rule in the Middle East or India didn't result in stability but greater chaos and war. India witnessed a wave of ethnic and religious violence punctuated by a war over Kashmir between the newly independent states of India and Pakistan. In Palestine, British withdrawal resulted in full-scale civil war between the Jews and Palestinians followed by a regional war as the Arab states attempted to stamp out the newly independent Jewish nation. I want to take a quick break here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. If you enjoyed learning about the early Cold War, help us by making a donation to help us produce our upcoming episodes focusing on the 1950s. Not in a position to help us with a a donation, help us by spreading the word with your friends and family, or by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends on Facebook. To make a donation or visit our website, go to www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. These colonial and post-colonial struggles presented many dilemmas in American foreign policy. America, in principle, was an anti-imperial power, and many people saw America as such, given its own revolution against the British. America also believed that the age of imperialism was over. Backing European colonial rule was a lost cause and would only garner the anger of the developing world. It wasn't a smart move either for American trade or investment. Yet at the same time, America was propping up these European nations against communism in Europe. They knew some of their Marshall Plan funds were being diverted to fight these conflicts. Moreover, pressuring their governments or not supporting them financially could result in communist governments coming to power in Western Europe. It was also hard for Americans to embrace some of these independence movements because of their embrace of communist ideology, such as the Viet Minh in Vietnam or communist insurgents in Malaya. Therefore, the period 1945 to 1950 saw America take a mixed approach to the issue. The United States did pressure the Dutch to end colonial rule in Indonesia, as it was easier for the U.S. to take this position as Serkana wasn't communist. Moreover, Holland was a much smaller player in the world and Western Europe, versus either Great Britain or France, where America had a little less leverage. In Indochina, Madagascar, and in Malaya, the United States remained neutral, despite the fact American surplus weapons were being used and money was being spent on these conflicts. The U.S. wagered in these conflicts that the British and French support in Western Europe and against the spread of communism was more valuable than their pressuring their governments to relinquish these imperial holdings. The Soviets, in contrast, although rhetorically supporting the independence movements, provided little of substance. Indeed, the Soviet Union itself was a land empire with discontent regional nationalities and vassal states in Eastern Europe who struggled unsuccessfully during the period to achieve independence. In the Baltic, Ukraine, and Poland, revolutionary elements battled the ruling authority into the early 1950s unsuccessfully. As the global empires of Britain and France weakened, though, the era also witnessed a number of regional and global organizations that came into existence at the end of World War II, such as the United Nations, NATO, the World Bank, and IMF. The UN succeeded the League of Nations as the international treaty organization that would attempt to prevent a future world war. Both the League of Nations and the United Nations were both diplomatic initiatives led by the United States and American presidents. Woodrow Wilson saw the League of Nations as an international body that could make nations equal and prevent another world war through ongoing diplomacy and international law. This attempt, although well-meaning, failed dramatically in the culmination of World War II. One of the biggest issues was the League's lack of major power participation. France and Great Britain were permanent members, but Italy, Japan, Germany, and the Soviet Union's memberships were fluctuating, and the United States never became a member as Wilson failed to convince the Republicans in Congress and the American people about the value of the institution. Moreover, although all states were declared equal, in reality they were not. Small countries like Austria or Ethiopia did not have the same influence as the British Empire or the Soviet Union, but this reality was not reflected in the organization, which caused friction between the strong and weak powers. Britain and France were the only real security creditor nations, whereas states like Belgium or Denmark, who might want to take a greater stance against Germany or Italy, lacked the power to do so. The League also ignored most of humanity. The countless subjects of European empires throughout Asia and Africa had no representation within the League, in contrast to the European peoples who had been granted the right of self-determination in the wake of the First World War. In essence, the League respected the equality of all white people, with the exception of a few others like Japan and China and Ethiopia, but most of the world's population lived in continued servitude to European masters. Another issue was the League of Nations had no bodies that worked around global economic issues— So, when the Great Depression arrived in 1929, the global community had no formal bodies to coordinate efforts around recovery. Before the war, Great Britain and its gold standard had acted as the lender of last resort, in concert normally with other European powers to address recessions and economic panics. Nevertheless, by 1919, she had a huge war debt, as are the rest of Europe's major economies, which precluded them from addressing the issue as they had in the 19th and early 20th century. Therefore, the Depression was not met with a coordinated effort in international loans, but protectionism, high tariffs, inflation, and national isolation, which resulted in more international friction. Japan and Germany, large exporters became expansionist powers in order to secure markets for their goods. More importantly, the United States, the world's primary creditor, largest economy, and the source of the Depression, wasn't a member of the League. The Depression hit most of the world hard. Many countries brutally cut their social benefits. Others pursued disastrous inflationary policies that wiped out the wealth of millions of people. This led companies to lay off people, which in turn led to less consumerism and the closure of more factories and businesses, with millions of workers out of work. Nations retreated behind tariffs and restricted international trade in the mistaken belief that these steps would save jobs. This contributed to the growth of radical politics on the left with communism and anarchism, and on the right with radical ethno-nationalism and fascism in many countries. Italy, Germany, and Japan decided to pursue expansionist policies, and the League of Nations lacked the tools to contain these rogue states. Ultimately, it came down to Britain and France to stand up against Germany, which escalated into a global war as more powers were drawn into the conflict. During the war, the League went into receivership, and was administered by a skeleton staff until it was officially dissolved in 1946. The United Nations, as with the League, was primarily an American idea, and its structure closely follows the plans prepared by American diplomats. Roosevelt himself advocated a plan he called the Four Horsemen. In FDR's view, the four powers of Great Britain, the United States, the Soviet Union, and China would be the world policemen, preventing the rise of future rogue powers in another world war. The British and Soviets weren't crazy about the creation of the United Nations, but both weren't necessarily opposed to it either. Both needed the United States and lend-lease to win the war against Germany, so why rock the boat and oppose the American pet project? Unlike in 1919, in 1945, the Democrats were prepared to wage a political and public relations campaign to get the United Nations Charter ratified by Congress. Ultimately, Majorities in both political parties endorsed the creation of the United Nations with broad national support. In contrast to the League, the United Nations would have an upper house that kept the peace known as the Security Council, composed of the world's five principal powers plus ten rotating members. Its five permanent power members would have veto power, meaning no action could be taken by the Council without the consent of its five permanent members. Moreover, the U.N. Security Council would have the power to use military force to enforce Security Council resolutions. They also agreed on the formation of a General Assembly comprising all the members to debate issues and approve budgets, but which would have no enforcement power. A Secretariat of International Civil Servants and an International Court of Justice would also be created. The other big lesson Western planners took from the failure of the League was the need for global financial institutions. They strongly believed, and correctly so, that the economic conditions of the 1930s had led to the rise of radical politics and the Second World War. The Soviets, however, were philosophically opposed to the creation of global financial institutions and believed that the roots of the World War itself was rooted in the contradictions of capitalism, which created the Great Depression in the first place. Therefore, they did not participate. The British and Americans, nevertheless, pushed ahead with the creation of these institutions. At the Woods Summit in July 1944, 44 nations met to reorganize the world economy in the wake of World War II. It was agreed the dollar would replace the pound sterling as the world's reserve currency with a portion of its value backed by gold. It was also agreed that two new organizations would be formed to help revitalize the world economy, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. Fears were great that the end of the war might lead to the resumption of the Great Depression, which had continued from 1929 until the beginning of World War II in most places. Indeed, the economic conditions of 1946 and 1947 were quite tough even in the United States. In Western Europe and Asia, many economies were on the brink of collapse with hunger, strikes, protests, starvation, and massive unemployment. The idea was that the IMF would be the glue that connected together the different national markets creating stability and order for foreign exchange markets to encourage the elimination of balance of payment problems and providing access to international credit in the event of disruptive shocks to the market. Before World War II, there had been no controls on the flow of global capital. The interwar period 1919-1939 to saw a collapse of the system and the widespread implementation of capital controls and the decline of international capital movement. The IMF was intended to relax these controls and gradually revive the flow of international capital. The World Bank was to be primarily funded by the private market. Government-to-government loans had been necessary during the war, but Britain and the United States wanted to revive private international lending. Bank loans would be productive projects for infrastructure and agricultural development, not for balance of payment issues as so many of the loans of the 1920s had been. The bank would not receive deposits. It was to make loans to governments only. Four-fifths of its assets were not to be loaned out, but used as a guarantee against losses. It was only to lend to nations not capable of borrowing on reasonable terms from other sources. The starting capital of the bank would be $10 billion, with voting power determined by the number of shares held by each state, with no government holding more than 25% of the total voting power. Membership in the bank was made conditional on membership in the IMF. Despite the aspirations of the bank, though, it was an American government-dominated institution in its early years as the United States provided most of the money and held most of the votes. Ultimately, the bank failed to kickstart the world economy in the late 1940s and it was really the Marshall Plan which saved the economies of Western Europe and defense spending in the Korean War which saved Japan. Nevertheless, the World Bank would go on to have a growing importance in the years to come. The Brenton Woods system overall would define the world economy for the next 25 years and for the first half of the Cold War. The Brenton Woods system that emerged was unique as there had never been an institution in which so many countries had agreed to subject their important financial decisions to, nor had an international institution like the World Bank existed. The New Deal policies of the United States and the social democracies of Europe have been applied at the international level to try and control the effects of economic downturn to prevent nations from becoming radicalized. The major significance of the Bretton Woods for the U.S. was that it represented a victory of the internationalists like Wilson and Roosevelt over the forces of economic and nationalistic isolation of the pre-war period. With the creation of the UN and the Britain-Woods system, the United States had put to rest the voices of isolationism and had willingly taken up the mantle of leading the democratic and capitalist world order. The World Bank and IMF, like the United Nations and later NATO, became part of a cluster of international organizations to appear at the end of the Second World War and would play a definitive role in shaping the world throughout the Cold War period and into the present day. Warfare also changed drastically during the period. World War II, 1939 to 1945, saw large-scale conventional battles across the globe. Large armies of tanks and mechanized units clashed in Western Europe, the Russian steppe, and in the sands of North Africa. At sea, American and Japanese fleets clashed in the Pacific, while in the Atlantic, Germany waged an unrestricted warfare campaign to starve Britain into capitulation. In the air, fleets of planes clashed in the skies above Europe and Japan. Axis and Allied bombers devastated cities like Shanghai, Warsaw, Rotterdam, London, Hamburg, Cologne, Dresden, Tokyo, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. Hundreds of thousands of civilians died, and horrible weapons like napalm and the atomic bomb were developed to destroy these cities. The early Cold War 1945 to 1950 was much different in contrast. The major powers resisted the temptation to engage in direct conflict despite the tensions in and around Berlin in 1948. Most of the fighting consisted of small guerrilla wars throughout the world, in Indonesia, French Indochina, Malaya, Greece, Madagascar, Ukraine, and the Baltic, although there were small-scale conventional conflicts between newly independent Pakistan and India and between Israel and its neighboring Arab states. At sea, the navies declined and shrank, not from battles but from budget cuts and the advent of new technologies, which made many ships obsolete. Cruise missiles, jet aircraft, helicopters, and the atomic bomb revolutionized thought around naval warfare. The battleship, once the center of the fleet, gave way to the carrier, but even the carrier was considered obsolete by many. Allied naval power greatly outweighed that of the Soviet Union, not only in ships, but in quality and experience. Yet the Soviet Navy, unlike most fleets in the period, grew in numbers, introducing new ships, and its submarine fleet posed a real threat to Allied shipping in the North Atlantic. Fleets during the period found themselves providing support to colonial forces such as the French Navy in Indochina and the British Navy in Malaya. The era lacked any significant engagements at sea, and the navies spent the period scrapping obsolete ships and investing in new technologies. Air power during the era also drastically changed. The piston-driven aircraft became obsolete as a result of the jet aircraft that was introduced at the end of World War II. The British were in the lead with the Meteor and the Havilland Vampire, which were the best jet aircrafts of the period. The Americans had introduced a jet, the P-80, but it was inferior to its British cousins. Yet America continued to invest resources into avionics. Learning from both the British and captured German aircraft and designers culminating with Chuck Yeager's breaking the sound barrier in 1947. The Soviets, also behind in jet technology, learned from captured German technology and designers and from the British. The British, hoping to improve relations with the Soviets and hopes to develop markets for their civilian aircrafts, sold Rolls-Royce jet engines to the Soviets under an agreement the Soviets would not use the technology for military use. The British also naively believed that the Soviets were technologically incapable of copying the engines. Suffice it to say that they were greatly mistaken, and by 1949, the Soviet MiG-15 was introduced, a jet that was far superior to any in the West at the time. The strategic bomber, which came into its own in World War II with aircraft such as the B 17 and Avro Lancaster, also continued to see development as a weapons platform during the period. The Americans retained a fleet of B 29s from World War II, but also improved the existing B 29 design with the upgraded B 50, which was capable of carrying atomic bombs without modification and in flight refueling. The B 36 was also introduced, which was capable of hitting targets in the Soviet Union from bases located in the United States. Both of these bombers were capable of entering Soviet airspace and bombing at will, since neither Soviet interceptors nor anti-aircraft guns could reach the altitudes they operated at. The British as well continued to invest in their bomber force despite defense cuts. The Avro-Lancaster was replaced by the Avro-Lincoln bomber. It didn't have a nuclear capability, but carried a conventional load comparable to the B-50 at similar ranges, although it had a lower service ceiling. In the event of a war 1945 to 1950, Lincolns would have hit targets in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. The Soviets initially lacked a strategic bomber, as Soviet aircraft development had focused on ground attack and medium-range bombers during World War II. In the initial stages of World War II, much of the Soviet air force was destroyed on the ground. As a consequence, the Soviets focused on winning air superiority and attacking Axis ground forces and supply lines. Building long-range, expensive bombers wouldn't have made much sense for the Soviets 1941-1944. to However, with the end of World War II, it was clear that in any future conflict with the capitalist powers, especially the United States and Great Britain, a strategic bomber would be necessary. The Soviets, however, lacked any comparable modern long-range bombers beyond the few remaining obsolete TB3s. Stalin had requested B 17s and B 24s through Lend Lease in late 1944, but the Americans refused to provide them. Stalin, however, decided to copy three American B 29s that had crash landed in Russia after attacking Japan. This design became the Tu 4, inferior to the B 50 and B 36, yet a massive jump in Soviet bomber design. It was comparable to the American B 29 and could have delivered Soviet nuclear strikes in the early 1950s against Western Europe and Alaska. 847 Tu-4s were built from 1947 until 1952 and were operational with the Soviet Air Force until the 1960s, some of which were sold to China in the mid-1950s and operated into the late 1980s with the Chinese Air Force. Air transport also saw considerable development during the period. Air supply had made major gains in methodologies and technology in World War II, especially with the German airborne forces in the Low Countries and Crete, and allied efforts at supplying the nationalist Chinese over the hump from bases in India uh, over Japanese-controlled Burma. The C-47, with its rugged airframe and good range, became a mainstay for regional cargo deliverers and still sees service in some remote parts of the world today. During the early Cold War, along with the C-54 Skymaster, it helped to save Berlin from starvation during the Berlin airlift. The C-47 also operated as the primary air transport for the French in Indochina and the British in Malaya. In conclusion, the early Cold War was an era of continuing political instability, rapid technological growth, and strategic stalemate. The post-war economic ruin of Western Europe, coupled with the decolonization, created many regional wars. These wars were not as intense as World War II, but tens of thousands of people were still fighting and dying despite the surrender of the Axis powers in 1945. Even in regions where peace emerged, like Japan and Europe, the devastation of war led to political instability and strikes, protests, and riots. Hunger, malnutrition, and starvation also remained serious concerns for years to come after World War II. As a consequence, Western Europe saw massive economic investment to stabilize the region, yet, Asia and Eastern Europe continued to struggle into the 1950s. Despite the end of World War II, technology, especially military technology, continued to advance rapidly. The U.S., Great Britain, and the Soviet Union continued to invest heavily into the atomic bomb, aircraft, tanks, and even small arms, which saw technological breakthroughs during the period. The Soviet introduction of the AK-47 would be one such development that would have ramifications for decades to come and ultimately result in more deaths than the atomic bomb. Essentially, though, the early Cold War was a stalemate. America did achieve some early wins with the Marshall Plan, West Germany, the NATO alliance, and the victory of government forces in Greece. They halted the spread of communism in Europe and the Middle East in pressuring the Soviets to withdraw their forces from Iran. Yet the Soviets scored their own victories as well. Despite the allied creation of West Germany and quashing communist parties in France and Italy, they were powerless to do anything about Eastern Europe turning communist. Soviet development of the atomic bomb and the communist victory in China delivered a powerful one-two punch to American standing in the world in the span of a few months. China, with its hundreds of millions of people and untapped potential, represented a massive propaganda victory for international communism and facilitated the spread of communism to other regions of the world, such as India, Southeast Asia, and Japan. The loss of China critically weakened the Truman administration and made them look weak on communism, despite all their efforts in Europe and the Middle East to contain its growth. The Soviet acquisition of the atomic bomb also put the U.S. and Soviet Union on equal footing. Granted, the Soviets didn't have the potential to hit the lower 48, but Alaska and Western Europe would now be in the range of Soviet bombers. America did have a clear economic and technological lead over the Soviet Union, but in the early 1950s, it looked as though that technological edge was slipping away, and despite America's vast wealth, throwing money at problems, as in China, didn't ensure victory. In January 1950, it was hard to say who was winning the Cold War, as neither side was close to victory. The U.S. had failed to stop the advance of communism in Asia, but in the developed world, communism wasn't on the verge of expanding in either Western Europe, Japan, or America. Looking forward in the podcast to the 1950s, we will be covering some familiar themes that we examined in the first five years of the Cold War, like intelligence or decolonization. We will examine the KGB, British and U.S. intelligence agencies, and their operations in the 1950s. We will also be covering the continued decline of the French and British empires. We will look at the Kenya crisis and the French efforts in Algeria, along with decolonization in other parts of Africa and Asia. Other episodes will cover new subjects such as the Korean War, McCarthyism, and what nuclear war would have looked like in the 1950s had it happened. We will continue to examine events in the Soviet Union with the death of Stalin and the rise of Nikita Khrushchev. We will also look at events in China with the Great Leap Forward. And we will also continue to look at technological developments in computers, nuclear weapons, aircraft, and more. So stay tuned for future episodes. I hope you enjoyed this recap episode reviewing 1945 to 1950. If you want to learn more about any of the topics I covered in this episode, check out the topics titles for our first 57 episodes. Obviously, there are a lot of subjects I didn't cover in this review episode that I do go into in our first 57 episodes. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends into history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast. Check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one world. Well there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.